Listen, there's a reason the ultra-wealthy have been investing in fine wine for centuries. Historically stable returns and a lack of volatility make it stand out compared to traditional assets, especially during a downturn. But now you can invest alongside with them with Vint. Vint is an SEC-qualified investment platform that offers shares of the most sought-after wines in the world. So join the thousands of investors diversifying with fine wine and spirits. Learn more at VINT.co. For full investment disclosure information and more, visit VINT.co. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. A Sherpa is a mountain guide predominantly hailing from the region in and around Mount Everest in Nepal. So you have an idea about a payment startup. How do you go about it? This week, we'll be your Sherpas and help you navigate the complex space of payments. Hi, I'm Faisal Khan. And I'm Brian Romley. And uh, this is Around the Coin. Mike can't join us today. He's overcoming, uh, I think, uh, an incredible interview we did earlier in the week. How are you doing today, Faisal? I'm doing good. Yourself? I'm doing wonderful. I'm doing wonderful. What's interesting? Your, uh... What's interesting this well, week? What have you done? <laughs> Won the Cora Top Writers 2016 Award. I know. It's so amazing. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So I was thinking we'd talk about uh, the startup world of payments specifically with respect to uh, this. I mean, as part of my work and I also believe your work, we come across hundreds of people who query us every day and ask us, you know, is this idea good? You know, should I go for it? Blah, blah, blah. How do I go about it? How do I secure my banking? How do I get my money transmitter license, etc.? So we thought we'd talk about it, I guess, more from a philosophical point of view of, you know, if you have a payments idea, is, is there merit to go into it? Is there too much competition out there, in your opinion or my opinion? Is there is it a level playing field? Uh, should you go for venture capital funding or not, etc.? So I'll start with the question, Brian. Someone has an idea. What do they do? Wow. Indeed, this is an amazing topic. So I believe that the most important thing in life, and a lot of VCs will disagree because they're looking at a much different worldview than I think um, – uh, what an entrepreneur, entrepreneur should be looking through. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs react to what they see venture capitals, capitalists talking about. So let me start at the root. The root is all ideas are a creative thought process. And you need to be fanciful with your ideas. They need to be boundless. You need to be childlike. You need to have that innocence of what would the world look like if I could fly? What would the world look like if I was on a beam of light traveling 
uh, at the speed of light. That's what Einstein did. That's how E equals MC square and general relativity ultimately was discovered and conquered. So the great ideas come from fanciful thinking. So if you have an idea in payments, allow your creativity to expand as far and as wide as you can let it go and keep it to yourself for a while. If you're lucky, you may have sounding boards around you, but massage these ideas, let them grow, and then look at the world how you want it to be, and then you start developing there. Now, this is a very important process. Uh, It's a process of you putting a seed in the ground and not quite knowing whether it's a turnip or an apple tree. So you put that seed in the ground. Now your job is to stand back and give it the soil the water, the sunlight, the right conditions must arise for this to take hold. Don't pull on the shoot the moment it comes out of the ground and say, I want an apple tree, give me apples. That's not how life works. Great ideas will flow around you. So you observe what these ideas develop into. They will gel and gestate. And your job, if you are to have a job as an entrepreneur, is to foster this development to be able to adjust to what these ideas ultimately arrive at. And anybody, anybody that tells you that they had an exact vision in their mind of exactly what they were going to do with any great transformative ideas, they're lying to you or they're lying to themselves. This is simply not how humanity has ever worked. There's no creative thought comes that way. It's, it's a process of creation, and that process of creation requires a whole lot of X factors that even today in 2016, we don't fully understand. So allow that development process. Okay. That, that's the esoteric part of this, if you, if you will. Uh, but so what's the pragmatic, the pragmatic part, the first is obviously the idea has to have that idea and don't give it it up. Well, the problem, right? So we are trying to address a problem. Uh, and I keep not, saying this all the time. Not always you know, a problem, though. I, I don't, sometimes it's a problem that this makes you mad. You look at something, ah, oh, it shouldn't work that way. Let it get under your skin. Get mad. Get angry. Do something because that emotional charge is absolutely necessary to bring the gestation of that idea, that plant to grow. For that seed to even want to shoot out uh, you know, a, 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 the beginnings of growth, it requires more energy than that plant will ever have in its entire life. And a lot of people don't understand that. I use nature analogies because guess what? We're a product of nature. Fact, mm-hmm. right? Billions of years. So let's use these analogies. And so that, that shoot, if you look at it, if you put a piece of cement and you leave it out in the middle of nowhere and you don't tend to that cement, you come back 10 years later and there'll be plants that grew right through that cement. And you say, how in the world did a shoot of a plant get through the middle of 10 inches, 20 inches. You go to old military bases from the Cold War in the United States. There are trees growing right through 35 inches, 50 inches of concrete. They say, why, how? Well, the concrete degraded. No, the plant overcame the concrete. So that energy is there. That energy is in the idea. But you have to be able to stand back and understand it. Now, there's a practical and pragmatic realities of the world. Now, a lot of people get mad at me because I hold these two things together because that's the only thing you can do. The practical and pragmatic and the creative process must coexist if you're going to have a business. You need to have both, but you need to know where the balance is. That's where good co-founders might come in, good life partners, uh, good mentors, Mm -hmm. 
or just you doing it yourself. See, I'm a believer of the EIY, DIY mentality. EIY represents earn it yourself. DIY is do it yourself. And you want to know where this really came to fore in our epoch? The punk movement. The punk movement in the Americas and in the UK. It was a kid with a, a, an urge, a screaming desire to get some message out. And the only way they could do it is pick up a guitar, learn maybe one or two chords, if that, scream at the top of their lungs and smash that guitar because they were not trying to be good songwriters. They were trying to communicate a message, a message that we may or may not resonate with today or even at that moment. You might see it as noise. I see it as an expression and how to get out. And guess what? It's the exact same process in any form of creation. And we have become babied in this highly capitalized, big multiples, uh, VC world. Nothing wrong with it. But we're in an, a wash of insanity of maybe people trying to duplicate what they thought was the best last idea and the next guy that comes along that duplicates that kind of idea, I'll throw uh, you know, a billion dollars behind it. We'll make him a unicorn. You know, mm. that unicornization. It's also peer pressure, right? Of course. In many ways. Of course. If, if you know, everybody's paranoid that they're going to miss the very next big thing. And guess what? You're probably going to miss the very next big thing because the idea that comes up will sound quite incredibly small at first. Like, you know, you had, you had, um, uh, Larry Page and, uh, and, and, uh, well, you know, uh, Sergey. <laughs> yeah, Sergey Brin. And they're sitting in their dorm room and the Yahoo's already taken off. And they're saying, you know, and the Alta Vistas. Yeah. And the Lycos. And they're just a couple of students, computer science majors, not apparently very remarkable uh, amongst their peers. And they go, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build an algorithm to kind of scan the Internet for some interesting stuff. And everybody said, oh, that's been tried before. You know, those crawlers are doing all right, but, you know, you want human cur- curation. Now, of course, it is true, and it will always be true to some extent, to some parts of the Internet. But what they tapped upon was the fact that the Internet was growing exponentially. And they were able to find a better way of vetting that information and making it more prominent for you and I to search. Now, that was a core yeah. mission of Yahoo, and it sounded very provincial at the time. Most ideas seem very provincial, very small. Oh, that's been done before. First, you're going to hear that. Guess what? Every freaking idea has been done before. Get it in your head. Every one of them. I'll tell this to anybody that's listening to my voice. I especially say this to people who are in kingmaker and power positions. Understand that every idea has been done before. And I say it to entrepreneurs. Don't let that be your barrier. It has nothing to do with anything. Your idea is unique because you are unique. And you have the ability to express that idea in a much different way. But if you express that idea without energy, without the desire that this idea must be birthed, it must, it must come to life. If you don't have that seed that must explode or shoot out of it, you're not going to, I don't care how great the idea is, it's not going to gestate in this particular form. Somebody else will pick it up. You know, look at the Mercedes-Benz versus uh, Henry Ford scenario. That's another example of, some people might say execution. That's, that's hogwash. That's ex post facto rewriting of history. Henry Ford was not a master executor. Every color, except as long as it's black, that's not. That's not. You want to know what the most popular use of the very first uh, Ford cars were? 
Delivery vehicles, trucks. You want to know the last thing Henry Ford wanted to make was a truck. He felt that a wagon with a horse was much more powerful than him putting a flatbed. So entrepreneurs were ripping out the back seats of Ford Model Ts, putting a flatbed on it and making them into delivery vehicles because they, they were workhorses. It took, and I might be a little off here, maybe 10 years before Henry Ford decided to do that. So don't give me a story that Henry Ford was a master of execution. So when people tell you entrepreneurs need to execute, yes, at some point. This is not an explanation of entrepreneurs don't need to monetize. Some people might say, Brian, you know, they have to execute and monetize. No, and you don't have to grow big fast either because guess what? None of the great ideas grew big fast either. Mm. We've gotten addicted to that because social networks, because what do they have in their name? Network have a network effect, and network effects are interconnectivity where the sum total of the network increases substantially, maybe uh, exponentially, because more people are on it. Yes, things can have a network effect, but only some things. So if you create an idea that you think must become a network effect overnight, you probably aren't going to be successful because few ideas outside the realm of social networks will have a network effect. And even social networks that do don't necessarily have a network effect hmm. long term. So let me ask you, I mean, you know, some some couple of people have an idea on a payment system. They're thinking so many so many things. They're thinking how do we how do we get revenue? How well I well I guess first how do we get money to even code the idea if that's uh, sure. if that's an approach. Should we go the VC route? Should we not go the VC route? How do we get access to banking? How do we get access to uh in the US I guess it would be money transmitter licenses. Oh, how do we God. find co- you know, how do we find co-founders or, or technical, you know, sure. people to code? So what's your advice? Let's start well, with the money well, let's, aspect. Yeah, well, let's unpack, let's unpack that first. The first thing you have to do as an entrepreneur with an idea is you have to cr- create, uh, well, commit it to paper. All right? Uh, write notes. So what are we committing to paper? I mean, are we, uh, I, always, I always keep saying, you know, What's the problem that you're trying to solve? I mean, I need to understand the problem. Yeah, it's according to your idea. Some ideas are not really being, you know, Henry Ford, if he would ask the Pony Express, what problem do you need solved? They'll say, my problem is faster horses. So I don't want to always just limit it to a a, a particular problem. You, you have to kind of take a step back and say some problems will develop that you're going to address. But let's just assume that you have... Uh, been driven by this immense problem that you see that the world mm-hmm. doesn't seem to uh, have an answer for, or maybe don't even at this point see as a problem. Sketch it out. You know, if it's technology, it's an app. What does that app look like? What does the startup screen look like? And get crayons on out. You know, a lot of people ask me about payfinders. You know, the interface looks like you made it with crayons. Well, got a secret. It was. I was sitting at my kid's, you know, little uh, art table and I made it with crayons. I probably put it up there one day. Black crayons. And it's monochromatic because I want it to be that way. Um, yeah, it'll change. But the, the, the thing was, you, you commit your idea to paper because now it becomes concrete to a certain level. And you start looking at it and you start considering it. You say to yourself, what is it that I can do within this idea and where can I find help? Now, With great ideas, and this is going to sound very mystical, you have to recognize that when you, when the time comes where you need assistance, 
somehow the assistance will demonstrate itself somewhere, somehow. And the biggest thing you need is awareness. Now, if you go out there and say, I have a great idea, now I need to get a whole lot of money, I got to tell you that very rarely, very rarely do I see that become a successful formula. What you need to do is commit that idea down. It must be a burning desire. It's something I learned a long time ago from Napoleon Hill, and I absolutely encourage any independent thinking individual to go back to Napoleon Hill and all of these thinkers. These are not motivational thinkers. They're empiricists. Napoleon Hill, in his epoch, went back and researched every successful person that would talk to him. And he didn't craft some esoteric theory about life. The nine-to-five bloke that stuck into that paradigm might see it as esoteric. But any creative individual that has built something will say, wow, that's yeah, that explains how I did it. Um, this burning desire drives you forward, but you also need a burning desire to be aware because there's going to be points in time where somebody will spark a conversation up with you and they'll say, you know, I wish I could do this. And all of a sudden, two people are now talking about maybe the same thing. And then you need to have the volition to act and to maybe bring somebody on into the project. Now, somebody might say, okay, it's not happening that way. I need to plan. I can't just sit there and let the universe come to me. That's not what I'm saying. You are always planning, but you are always aware. So do you need somebody technical? Well, that's a good question. Are you capable of being technical? My answer to you is yes, period. I don't care. You failed math. I don't care. You didn't like science. I don't care. Can you code? Absolutely. Can you learn to code? Yes, you can. Now, you have to make a choice. Where, where do you want to put your time? Okay, you and I as human beings have three groups of eight. Eight hours of sleep, hopefully. Eight hours of work, maybe, if you're you know, a wage earner or working for somebody. And eight hours of optional elective time. That's what us human beings have. Now, what we've discovered and what Napoleon Hill discovered and what a whole lot of people, Earl Nightingale is an incredible individual, another person you should be listening to. And whoever's listening to me right now, I don't care who you are, listen to Earl Nightingale. These individuals show you that this eight hours of elective time, what do we do with it? Even the most productive individual doesn't really utilize that eight hours of elective time. So you might say, I don't have the time, Brian. I, I I work for the man. I'm working for a boss. That's right. Your boss is you, you know, and you, maybe you're not cut out to be self-sufficient, whatever. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing or a good thing you're working for somebody. It's whatever you want in your life it's, if it's fulfilling. But what I am telling you right now is you have the time and I can show you. I can give me 10 minutes and I'll show you, you have the time. What do you need to do? Well, take one hour a week. How many hours does that produce? That's hundreds of hours a year. Does it have to happen overnight? I must do it today? Well, if your idea is bold enough, it's probably been sitting right there in front of everybody for a very long time. You know, I, I, again, I, I've come up with a lot of businesses. Uh, in fact, speaking of core, I just got this notice uh, on Friday that I was a top red writer in business strategy. And I don't want to toot my own horn because really it just it almost brought tears to my eyes because – I believe business strategy is the most important thing a business has. And it sounds kind of obvious, but it's the last thing that I think a lot of people think about. Strategically, what are you trying to do? Well, you have to first strategize yourself. So you have, a, you have a, these hours of time. 
So you say to yourself, what can I do with those hours? Think. Think. That's it. Napoleon Hill and Earl Nightingale, they said, write down as much as you can about whatever you like and keep building these lists. And sooner or later, even if it's muscle memory, the ideas will be getting better. Now, you have a core idea, right? But you have to build other ideas of satellites around these core ideas. You start building more and more around this. Now you're getting into the mechanics. Now let's move into a specific sector. Let's call it payments now, because that was a very general thing. Payments. It looks like it's all been done before, right, Faisal? It looks like Visa and MasterCard got it sewed up. Uh, you know, algorithmic alternative currencies, Bitcoin, that's sewed up. Money transmitters, that's kind of been done. And, you know, you got Western All the Union. fintech movement. Yeah, banks got it. You know, now banks are innovating. They're not going to be disrupted. See, the infantile view of the Silicon Valley about payments was centered around a misinterpretation of Clayton Christensen's disruptions theories. We love using the word disruption. And we use it in the same way I use EIY and DIY, because really, EIY, DIY is what we really all should be voting for, not disruption, right? Because we think disruption is really what those things are. Disruption will never take place in payments in our lifetime. Uh, and let's just bury that. It's, and I think after Clinkle, we can pretty much, some people say, flush the toilet on it, you know? Because, <laughs> you know and and, I would agree on that. And I say this not because I dislike the people behind Clinkle. I, I, I think, you know, there were some brilliant individuals there, maybe still are. What I disliked was it evaporated the support of creative ideas being considered by venture capitalists. There are ideas that were coming to gestation that needed this firm foundation of capitalization to get from point A to point B. And no, Klinkel's working well, VC, on Well, VCs knew about the risk, right? So you can't really say that they are too, I mean, just because one company went bust and it took a whole lot of money, well, they haven't gone bust yet. Yeah, but, but they're you know. human beings, Faisal. And what happens is, you know, there Conf- is, confidence gets a little shattered. Exactly, guess, you know? exactly. So- we're now in an, uh, the post-Clinkle ex- epoch, the post-Square epoch, you know, where there was this idea that there was going to be disruption, you know. And I'm not saying that either one of these companies really coveted that notion, but they allowed that maybe to get better hires, you know, because sometimes you want to have a narrative to get people behind your idea. I think it's foolhardy. I think if you're going to go out and carry the disruption flag, you better damn well disrupt or else you're going to have a lot of broken hearts in the media and the people who have supported you, uh, venture capitalists, employees, everybody. So start with the notion that you're just trying to build something you want to see in the world. And now in payments, you, you look at all these barriers. And this is where I got to start tapping into you about this because you see it every day. You're in a, on a much wider, larger scale. You got an idea that's going to touch the money transmitter world, right? What happens? You see it. The first time you tell them, I'm sure your heart breaks, right? Faisal, I, I invented this idea where I can fend, send my uncle uh, over in this part of the world some money. And you say, what? Do you have a money transmitter license? How does that work? <laughs> so that doesn't bode well with many. So they're either oblivious to the requirements or they they have a misconception that it costs too much money just to be able to get coverage for a money transmitter license. Uh, Both could not be further from the truth. The fact is that MTL coverage is available, is available for a very low cost 
Uh, it is a very guarded in industry. The people who have the money transmitter licenses, uh, many of them are my clients, place a trust in me. And I'm just you know, talking about my personal example. They place a trust in me and say, Absolutely. listen, you come across people, why don't you filter some? And if you think someone is worthy to talk to, you know, hand them over to us. Because we are not go- certainly going to advertise that, you know, you can, they can use our money transmitter license <laughs> for, for such purposes and get in trouble with the regulators. And the second is uh, banking and banks and banking agents, a companies who are agents of banks or, you know, BSA entities in the U.S., they get money transmitter exemptions uh, because there is a way if you work with a bank or a bank agent and if you don't touch the funds, uh, money transmission uh, you know, exemption is provided to you. So basically all I'm saying is you can have a product. You can go to market, you can have MTL exemption, provided you there is a certain flow of funds. Um, and most of the time, you know, startups will come to me, they'll show me the flow of funds, and I'll say, listen, if you're able to do this, you know, looking at your flow of funds, if you're able to change this, this may change your business model. In some, case, in some cases, it does. But if you're able to do this, I can hook you up with a bank or a banking agent who will take your business and provide you MTL coverage. So... MTLs are not too expensive. They used to be very, very expensive. Today, you can get them uh, for maybe very, very low. I'm talking about maybe one to two, maximum, maximum $3,000 a month. Wow. So you can get 50, 50 state coverage. Uh, the upfront fee is pretty low, between five dollars and $10,000. They used to be hundreds you know, of thousands of dollars at one it time. It used to be. It yeah. used to be, but people have gotten a whole lot smarter. People have, uh, but you know, I mean, if you come and say, listen, I want to, st-, it, it all depends on the kind of business. So this is why the MTL holders and the banks are using intermediaries like me to make sure that I spend the time in sort of uh, eliminating and filtering the genuine from the non-genuine. So, so l- let, let me ask you then. So you got, you got a lot of people coming in your direction and, and have great ideas What's the first thing you tell them about their ideas, right? Because they're in an infantile stage, hopefully, which is good, right? And they're in development. So I give them hope. I, I think the first thing is I don't, you know, pop the bubble. I give them hope. I say, listen, uh, you have a problem. It's just that you haven't thought through all the angles. Uh, and it's okay. You don't need to know that. Uh, that's my job or someone else's job. Sure. But now that you know this part of the, this particular facet of your problem, which is licensing and regulatory compliance and so forth, there is there are, there are ways there are options, but you have to have three things. Uh, you have to be very cognizant of three things. Number one, it will take money; it's not for free. Number two, it might be a slight deviation from your original idea or your original um, you know flow of funds. And number three, you know, don't be doing no shady business. So if you're talking about anything yeah. that is anonymous, you know, uh, where I don't know or the bank does. not not know who they're dealing with the transaction cannot be anonymous at any stage in its uh, at any point in stage so it, we have to know who has the money at all points in time if all these three conditions are met you know finding a, a partner is literally a piece of cake so now it's it's the function of the desire of that individual to see that idea come to life Right. So you're looking for a motivation. You're looking for that spark of energy because, you know, as well as I do, you hear people produce an idea. And this is why it gets such a bad reputation. Everybody's got ideas. Few people execute. Yeah, true. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times people don't they give up 
probably too soon, or they don't believe in themselves that they can carry this idea to fruitation. Um, so you have a few people that actually keep on and are persistent with you. What's the next step for them? I mean, do you so personally want I, to see them build it out? Do you, you, do you tell them to go and get venture listen, capital I'm a, quickly? I'm, I'm an independent consultant. Sure. In, in, in simple words, I'm a broker. So there are two things that happens with a broker. Either I'll take a case, and if I take it, it's for money. If I, you know, and there's so much that I can contribute uh, pro bono. The problem is well, you, you're come, you're asking to get paid for doing this stuff. Uh, that's a shock on my side of the world because nobody wants to pay for really good payments information, and I can tell. <laughs> I'm yeah, joking. But, I'm joking. But, no, but, but the thing is, a lot of information we put out, and I've you know I've got five thousand, maybe eight thousand posts on the internet. You know, yes. highlighting all facets of payment. So if you haven't taken the time out to read it, that's your issue. But if you want to short-circuit the learning curve from, let's say, 10 months down to one week, there's a cost to it. Absolutely. That That is a fundamental differentiator between those who take the next step and those who don't. Many of them say, no, you know what, we'll go figure it out ourselves. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. I don't know. Uh, now, now, some let's freeze say, right there. Let's freeze right there because this is an important uh, determination. When we come up with great ideas, we have to come to that point in time where being new and quote-unquote disruptive. Now, I, I got to backtrack one step. I said there will never, ever be disruption in our lifetime in payments. I hold to that. But there will be revolution, and there will be evolution. And it doesn't mm-hmm. matter whether you want to be a revolution or an evolution. They're going to be very, very powerful in their own right. But one of the demarcations is to face yourself in the mirror about what you don't know and then you reach out to the empiricism of other individuals i call it empirical paraxis empirical Mm -hmm. paraxis is the basis of success of every single idea i've ever seen at some point in time you take empirical paraxis what does that mean well that means that you now get to the point that you're not trying to disrupt an incumbent or a legacy company. You're now trying to revolutionize something that's already out there because it is already being done. I don't care what you're doing. It's already been done in some way. It may not be efficient. It may be cheaper. It doesn't matter, but it's already being done. So now you have to look at the people who have the lay of the land. They come to you and they say, okay, I'll learn it myself. And like you said, you have graciously given for free I what I would imagine is millions of dollars of advice. Right? If if it was available in an open market, maybe even a you know a magnitude higher than that. And somebody says, "Okay, I'll go out and learn." The one thing entrepreneurs don't have once they get to a certain level is a luxury of time. So there's a balance between what can I buy uh, to get access to faster time, or what can, what am I going to sacrifice by not doing that? I think it's a realization, Brian. Also, you know, like you know, someone wants a desk. Well, are you going to build it yourself, or are you <laughs> going to go to IKEA and buy one? Uh, you can build it yourself. I have no qualms against that. You know, uh, but the thing is, in in this part of the world, in, in the payments world, uh, it's the realize it's a realization that you know, you know, you co- you go to an expert because. It'll help you solve your problem. People come to me with either the value chain, their entire value chain. They're either missing a link or they're missing a couple of links. And I say, you know, help me out here. Well, that's what I do. Remember, I'm a broker, basically. I'll fix your problem. But there's, a, there's, a, there's a price to pay for it. 
the same thing will be an attorney. Attorney will give you, you know, 30 minutes, 15 minutes free and say, hey, anything after this, you know, you got to pay. Same thing with any consultant. It's the same thing in the services. Services industry is hinges on payments, you know, <laughs> no pun intended. But, I mean, it hinges on, you know, being, pay, being paid for the information you provide. But see, some people... Some people see that as unholy because there's an egalitarian sort of, uh, you know, I'll work for free in the Silicon Valley, especially in the innovative world, which is brilliant. It's beautiful. But on the other side, there are people that have experience and they can't necessarily work for free because what? You're not going to give them a percentage of your company necessarily. You know, a lot of people are be like. Well, it's not even that for me. For my case, I mean, this is a, uh, as a personal example. Sure. I have given, like I said, about eight thousand, you know, blog posts. That's just uh, incredible. Information, that's right? incredible. So that's about two plus million words. An yeah. average novel is fifty thousand words. Uh, so you're talking about forty novels. I mean, I've put this information out there in absolute detail. I give people. I I donate about four about four hours a day on a weekday. Uh, 15 minutes free calls. Anyone can call and ask a question. Anything in that call, they ask wow. and I'll let them know, except the introductions. That's the only thing I don't do. Uh, and despite all that, you know, I mean, I get tons and tons of leads, but I, but I tell them, listen, if you want to go forward, you know, I mean, you wouldn't do work for free. Neither would I. I mean, I've already do, I already do my corporate social responsibility, if you will. <laughs> yeah, but, you're, you're uh, already donating your time uh, to the world. Yeah, a lot of it. A lot of it. So you see that as sort of a demarcation point and the seriousness and the, and the burning desire it, within it, an individual. It immediately, I can tell that these guys are serious or not because then they know that they have to go out into the market and raise money or get some money from their friends and family. Uh, you know, I, I, I came across this really brilliant company that had made a really brilliant prototype. Um, it's it's something to do with, you know, similar to what Airbnb does, sure. uh, but with a, with a slight difference. And uh, But that's why they stopped. You know, they said, you know, we built it as a school project, as a university project. They graduated. They spent some more time on it. They polished it. But they don't have any money. They just have zero money. Yeah, they could not even afford one hour of a lawyer's and attorney's time, right? So I said, you know, you know where your problem is. It's not in the product. It's now you need to go make a pitch deck or whatever. Go to friends and family and raise raise some, you know, angel investing, some seed investments. Yeah, yeah. So, now, uh, now that that is again another tool that venture capitalists and other people use to try to vet whether or not that individual is serious enough. And so, what we're giving is some of the secret code out there. So if you're seeking public um, investment, you have to be able to convince your most closest allies, your friends, your family, that they believe in you. And a lot of time, I'm not saying that's the exclusive thing that is being looked for. It's, it's but a it's good a big, litmus test, right? It is a good litmus test because if you can't convince them, then maybe you're going to have a problem convincing the rest of the world and consumer. And again, that brings me back to EIY, DIY. I mean, if you got a really great idea – and you really have the true burning desire. There are no barriers. You just go and do it. And it may be ugly. It may not work exactly perfectly. But neither did the first car. Neither did the first uh, you know, watch or the first rocket. And certainly the two bike mechanics on Kitty Hawk, Hawk in North Carolina, they did not have a perfect vehicle. But you and I fly around jet planes, and that was just about a century later. You know, the idea is, is the important thing, the ability for you to be driven. And I think that's where the fork in the road is. I think you can package your idea, which is the more popular thing. 
you package your idea in such a way where VCs are going to invest in it and you go down that route. Beautiful. Great. Mm. Or you DIY, EIY until um, it, it reaches a, a certain level. Now, some may argue you can't really do that in payments. I argue you can if you are mindful of the legalities and you're mindful of the challenges. But that's exactly the problem, Brian. So you see, they have exactly. an idea. They go code it. They bring it to some form of, you know, uh, some 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 uh, goal, I guess. And then they come out come against this block, which is the payments block, <laughs> the stumbling block, right? The compliance, the regulatory, the partnerships, having access to banking, finding banks who will work with them, finding correspondent partners overseas, etc. And they can learn it. It'll take them 10 months, 12 months. Uh, longer you know, than that, Faisal. You're giving well, me a lot of time. I mean, it could take I'm just, I'm just two or saying, three right? years so, to really learn this. So uh, now, how do you short circuit something like this? Well, the only way to do it is, you know, go get a consultant. And that's yeah. why you have consultants. Uh, but that's but that's one demarcation point. So, you know, it, and those that have the money, then, you know, the, the next thing is obviously looking at their base revenue models and the compliance and their, you know, the, the, the team that they have. And that's where they fall short a lot. So you have to build, you know, obviously at some point every company has got to build some form of a team. So one of the things that I look for is, is the founder technical or are they willing to become technical? And as far mm -hmm. as I'm concerned, I don't care who you are in business today. You better become technical to a certain level, period. Uh, uh, you know, just like I believe that coding should be an absolute requirement before you finish high school. You have to code at least three projects before you graduate. That's what I would love to see in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. Not that everybody needs to code for a living, although I think yeah. it ultimately would be a part of it. I think you need to yeah. know the process of, of matriculating ideas into something tangible, you know. So that founder needs to get... Uh, a group. And here's the, here's the thing I'm going to throw in that's going to be the monkey wrench. You need a technical founder as much as you need a sales founder. Now, this is somebody who is going to sell your idea and product, and they better be there at inception point. And it either is you, it could be your technical, I don't care who has a skill, or you hire somebody who it's their only skill, but it's got to be there. So I see a triumvirate of three a, a pyramid, a triangle, however you want to look at it, a very strong, uh, one of the strongest structures in nature is a triangle. And the ability, a circle too, but that's another story. Um, it's fear. The idea is you cannot build an, a great company unless the element of how it's going to be sold, and it will never be self-sold, uh, by the way. Uh, again, if you're building a social network, yes, the network effect will sell it, but ultimately you're going to have to sell it and somebody's going to have to sell it. So you better do it today. The biggest mistake I see in payment startups, and it's taking place right now with unicorns, right now, uh, they don't have uh, the selling uh, capabilities that they could and should have. And uh, it shows up, and you can never really recover from this. So you have three, three founders, or at least two founders, and one of those founders have the ability to marshal up energies. They're a salesperson. Listen, if you're a founder and you're selling a VC on something, you're already a good salesperson. Maybe you don't know it. I try to tell people that they are. You and I are in sales, whether we like it or not. Everybody is mm -hmm. in selling, and it's, a, it's, an, it's probably one of the most honorable professions there is on the planet. It's when you try to sell something to somebody who doesn't need it. That's where it gets a bad reputation. So you're there with this founder that has some selling capabilities. You're there with a technical founder. 
what are you looking for when you see this coming up? What are you looking for? Are you looking for a a, a, a breadboard, a, a, a sketch out, a wireframe of what no, their app actually, is going to I, I'm, I'm going to add one more thing. So I look for a compliance officer on board. Uh, I love that's, it. that's my next step. I love it. I am not looking at the product right now. I'm not looking. I said, okay, because we're not touching money or we're dealing with money, do you have a legal and a compliance officer on board that understands the ramifications of what you're getting into? Explain because that a be, little more. What, what is a compliance officer going to do? They have to be cognizant with the anti-money laundering laws. They have to be cognizant of the KYC laws. They have to know what sort of reporting would be asked of them. They okay, so KYC is know your customer. and Know means, your customer. That means you're yeah, not accepting it, customers that you that haven't anonymous. been able, That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, and even within KYC, there are many levels. Uh, the very baseline level, you know, just have a name and a number, something a little more with name, number, and a photograph or a driver's license and, you know, social security, date of birth, et cetera, et cetera. This is easy stateside. What if you're sending money to Sri Lanka? <laughs> how, do you, how do you identify someone in Sri Lanka? So, you, you better be cognizant of how things work out outside the U.S. So these you know? are all the moving parts uh, of your idea, right? Because you have... 6.7 billion yeah. people live outside the U.S., <laughs> my friend. So uh, if you're going to be con- you know, talking to them, you better know how better understand uh, that. KYC works on that part of the world and if it will be acceptable to the financial institutions that you deal with or touch with. Now, that sounds so, uh, like a whole lot of stumbling blocks. Oh, my gosh. Now I got to deal with rules, laws, and regulation. I can't move you, fast and break technology- things. Technology is not the issue here. Uh, pricing is not the issue here. Sales is not the issue here. The only thing that will shut you down is compliance. And they will shut you down. And if you're not careful, they Put can you get in jail. you in handcuffs. Yeah. yeah. yeah we, we've already seen that with the Bitcoin revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, so, all right. Now you have at least somebody mindful of that, bringing uh, maybe the next person in as a compliance officer to oversee everything. So now you have all the creative tensions of uh, sales. So the the thing I'm looking for is a Bible, which is the compliance Bible. You know, let me see a compliance program. Does it specifically cater to, and is it molded as per your product offering? That is the one thing that all finance, at this point in time, basically you're good to go, right? So what, what every bank will ask me is, you know, I will do a background check or every MTL company will ask me, I'll do a background background check on the guys that you're going to work with, you know, we'll find out how much money they have, maybe they don't, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the first thing I need, Faisal, is flow of funds and show me the compliance program. And the flow of funds is easy. The flow of funds let me know if they're willing to talk further. The next thing is they say is, okay, where's the compliance manual? Let me see the compliance program. Let me understand how they're going to mitigate risk. Now, let's unpack that. Yeah, let's unpack. What, what, would, what are some of the highlights that you would see inside this uh, compliance manual? Well, the first thing is obviously, you know, how is money being transmitted? The the anti-money laundering aspect is very important, uh, counter-terrorist financing and anti-money laundering. Uh, Many people don't know this, but the only real-time check that you can do is the checking names again at against the database. Specifically in the U.S., this would be the OFAC list, you know, the Office of Foreign Asset Control. So that is the only time a transaction has to be checked in real time because if your name is on the OFAC list and you let that transaction go through, that is going to put you in a world of pain and trouble. 
It's the only thing that happens real time. It is the only factor that basically is a go, no go on payments. Everything else happens post-transaction. All the anti-money laundering controls, all the you know, counter-terrorist financing controls, or everything else is applicable on the data that you have collected after the transaction, and then you run these programs on an hourly basis, on a daily basis, on a 24-7 basis, just trying to find patterns of money laundering, etc., etc. So just letting you know, just a simple thing of OFAC check. Who's doing that? Are you doing it? How good is your database? Is your uh, institution that you're handing it over to, are they doing it? What about the institution who's processing it on the other end? Are they doing it? What if one fails? What's your fail safe? Wow. You know, all these things. Wow. So this this is really where a really This is where developed, the rubber meets the road. Yeah, and, and the compliance officer is obviously going to serve in, in a tremendous state, state value. Of New York, the compliance in the state of New York, the compliance officer will now be held legally responsible for any lapses in the compliance program. Wow. So they can go to jail for it. They can go to jail, including the CEO, which who and the CFO and everyone else, but specifically the compliance officer. So if they're not comfortable with something because of you know peer pressure, sales, what have you, they're not going to sign off on it. So now we have basically the, the the beginnings of what appears to be the really big, large barrier because obviously a lot of venture capitalists are very mindful of this and they're looking at this stuff too. How does one overcome these obstacles when they're thinly funded and uh, you know got a, a great idea and, and all these founders? It sounds like it, it, the cards are just stacked so, so this far is against. Where, uh, I really don't know how to answer that, uh, except I have my own sort of theory. I said, okay, you know, you, many many companies that contact me, startups or otherwise, uh, in in the space of let's say cross border, right? Cross border money transfer. So I asked him, I said, okay, you know, you have all this stuff. It's all good on Excel. Have you actually done a cross-border transaction? Have you stood in line? Have you seen how the Dominican Republicans in uh, New York are sending money back home? Have you gone to Chicago on Devon Street and see how the Indians and Pakistanis are sending money home? Have you been on the other side? Have you actually gone to Bangladesh and see how money is received or in Philippines, etc.? Empirical research, field research. Exactly. And so what was it? Pardon me. You read this in a Time magazine article? <laughs> you know, it's not going to work this way because things are a whole lot different. So I, I persuade them to go and get data because at any point in time to say, well, we feel, I say, hold on, stop right here. You yeah. feel? And how did you feel? Do you have data to dr- drive that decision that you feel this way? If you don't, it's just hearsay. You know, Faisal, I think that's so important. we got to really underline that fact. I think one of the big failings of um, the venture capital that, you know, let's, again, be real frank, what happened with Klinkle was you had an individual who had a great idea but absolutely no empirical praxis. There was no field research. There was no uh, real desire to understand what the real world needed. We saw that with a lot of payment startups. We're still seeing it today. And now it doesn't stop you from going IPO and going public and getting money, but long term, the effects of that bad decisioning will matriculate a 10, 20, 30 years later. And it, it is a almost like a cancer. But sometimes that a it's even like missing the obvious, right? So there was a question, you know, there was a question that came across recently and says, you know, I want to start Venmo. I said, but you know, the question is, does your country want Venmo? You know, uh, uh, he says, but who wouldn't want Venmo? I said, you know, it's a 
great question to ask. Who wouldn't want Venmo? But there are certain countries who would not like Venmo. He says, name me two. I said, I'll name you three. Kenya. Kenya yeah. already has a mobile payment system, right? Of course. Philippines already mm. has one. Uh, Paytm in India. Bcash in Bangladesh. These are countries where a Venmo-like product will not work. Because even if Venmo itself ventured into these countries, the competition for the localized payment system, which is way, way high, the, the adoption rate, you simply cannot compete against those. Exactly. And, and again, that appears to be an insurmountable barrier. My, I would say that you can compete against anybody on any ground under anything if the idea and the uh, volition and the motivation is right, and also your determination. I mean, it may not take... So I think uh, localization, you know, right? Yeah. The localization elements are extremely important to study. Some things are just cannot be summed up in an Excel spreadsheet. So I think you need to go out, get the feel of the air, you know, the road, the people, the culture, uh, and sort of document your thoughts on that. And then say, you know what, maybe we missed, the, we, we, we jumped the gun. Maybe but, we're going to miss the boat. You but know, hold on. Maybe, maybe the idea is you have something that's somewhat more nebulous and you go out and you do the field research and you def- you define the whole problem as lemons and you start making lemonade instead of making, uh, you know, a coffee. The idea is the information that you get from doing empirical research, field research and interviewing and actually seeing people in real life that informs to a certain level. Then as an entrepreneur, you're adding synergy to that and you say, I see that and I can address that problem, but I, I see a meta issue. That I can but address. I can also but I can also tell you that you will not be blown to shreds when people were to question you. You'll have the confidence to answer it with such authority that the other person would you know really be impressed. And uh, because it, it will impress your competitors too, because they already might have the jump on knowledge will, that you don't have. <laughs> you will validate your own doubts. You know, you know, and and it's the thing I see constantly, or rather, invalidate them. Absolutely. The thing I see constantly in, in, in payments, and uh, we'll call them rookie mistakes, uh, just different things that take place that uh, make me cringe, you know, and I say, God, I, I would do this for free to explain to these folks that they don't need to go and do this. Not because it's been done before. That's, you know, it doesn't mean you're not going to be successful. Again, I, listen to what I said in the early part of the show. It doesn't matter if it's been done before because it has. What I am mm-hmm. saying is there's rookie mistakes that people make, and you're, you've surfaced a number of them right here, and they sound insurmountable. But some of them aren't so insurmountable. Some of them are just a matter of putting the time in and paying respect to something called history. You know, I don't care if you're reinventing the world. History informs your reinvention. And if you can go back in time and see epochs where human beings who have not changed emotionally and psychologically for, I don't know, 750,000 years – History informs. Even I go back to Samaria a whole lot when I'm talking about payments. I study that epoch. I study uh, Egyptian epoch. And there's so much to be informed about what we're doing today just in how we negotiate and communicate in these things that we call transactions. And here we are. You start up with a new idea and you don't even look at the history of where it came from. For example, if you want to start sending money to to, uh, Bangladesh, right? Well, and because maybe you saw somebody having a problem, maybe those problems are been addressed before, and people have failed because of X, Y, Z. Learn those things, and then maybe you approach it again. And you say, you know, that's not the problem I want to solve now. 
And are you seeing that? Are you starting to see that people are taking well, your I'll advice? Give you, I'll give you another example. Maybe you're trying, let's say you talk about the Bangladesh problem. So you go to San Francisco and you see, well, how are they doing it? Turns out most of the Bangladeshis happen to be in New York, New Jersey, Chicago, and in Texas, right? Sure. Uh, and they've already solved the problem. It's just that problem just doesn't exist in San Francisco. Exactly, exactly. So, so now what you have you is have you, to research you really have to go exactly. and talk you need a very large sample size you need to talk 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 meet as many people so now you're at the point where you have hopefully the core group you have maybe three four or five people in that core company where are they going now did, 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 so one of the, should I go so, directly to a VC and say here's my pitch deck let's do this should I go to incumbents and legacy companies should they so, be acquired? One of the things I then bring on the table as a sort of icing on the cake is I go out to information uh, brokers, if you will. I don't know what name I, should, I can give them, but basically these are people who have business. So, for example, someone makes a, a, an app that can transfer money from New York to Mumbai. So I said, okay, you know what? I know someone who's already doing $100 million, $200 million a year. I'm going to ask him to divert maybe, let's say, $50,000 worth of transactions per week to you and see how your system works. So traffic, inter- ready-made traffic. It's just like the you know, in the world of voice, you know, where wipe terminations go. Someone has traffic and they just give you traffic just to see how you perform. Sure. So rather than building from scratch, I try to work with companies where I have connections where I can get them business from day one. So someone has a mass payout solution. For example, someone says, I can do a mass payout in, uh, you know, 30 countries abroad. I said, okay, cool. Let me talk to this marketplace that, um, you know, does a lot of freelance work in the U.S. And they have uh, freelancers from all the countries that you've mentioned. And let's see how it goes. But before that will happen, here's what you're going to do. You want $50,000 worth of mass payouts? Put 50000 in deposit. Because if, shit is, if the shit is going to hit the fan, you know, my client is covered. I got gotcha. you. Now, it's something interesting. We got to kind of underline here. We are going contrary to what a lot of venture capitalists will tell you that a, a tech startup should have, because they'll tell you that you need to have an incredibly big and 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 well designed technical aspect of what you're doing. That it is the um, the uh, technology behind it that they're investing in, not all these other things. How do you feel about that? I mean, how do, I know that fits in, but where does it fit in? You know, I don't know. I, I, I don't sus- heavily subscribe to that school of thought. Uh, I believe I'm, I'm an old school guy, so I sort of look at, you know, okay, what's the problem? What are you addressing? It doesn't have to be a new problem. It could be an existing problem, you know? Uh, and just how are you addressing it? Do you think there's going to be acceptance in the market? Uh, how are you going to gain traction? How are you going to get clients? That's what I'm interested to know. Uh, someone someone was making a product to, uh, I don't know, it was something to do with you know payments in the U.S. And I said, well, for crying out loud, you guys don't even buy bread with digital money. <laughs> you don't. You don't. You just no. don't. Yet, you could buy one onion, just one potato in Kenya or even in Uganda or even in uh, Tanzania with digital money. But, you can. But, but Faisal, 
if that idea of M-Pesa we're talking about, if that idea of M-Pesa were presented in the Silicon Valley, hey, you know, I, I got this really high-tech idea of printing out money on, uh, you know, little thermal receipts and going into not even maybe even a feature phone, it would have never have gotten funding. It would have never have taken off. It really is an amazing story when you hear well, see, how it had a, You know, I asked people, and I've studied, you know, I've read uh, Leslie Unborn's uh, posts or tweets, yeah. exactly. And, and I've read everything there is to read about M-Pesa because you keep learning so much. Uh, but the, what was the basic problem they were trying to solve? Distance. Simple as that. Exactly. Distance. Uh, they took the physical proximity between two people or uh, you know the distance between two people and short-circuited it electronically using money. A person working in you know uh, Nairobi wants to send money to another town in Kenya. There's 150 kilometers in between. You know they don't have to sit on a bus and go and do it. They could do it electronically. The money arrived in minutes. See that sounds like it's not even a problem to a lot of people, right? Even though it's a real big problem. So really, you had people on the ground that were developing this because they saw it and they said, this needs to be fixed. And fortunately, there was the infrastructure. They really, you know, they got investment, but it was more out of charity that that investment came out because it mm-hmm. was an NGO effectively that put this together. Um, so what does that tell us about some of the big ideas? Because that is a big idea. We're, we in the Western world and the, the developed world and certainly the United States, that is a chemistry set of innovation uh, through all sorts of mechanisms. So, you know, I, I, I look at it slightly tangentially. Um, a company comes to me and says, I made a payment system and I'm going to onboard 50 million customers. I said, okay, let me, let me put it this way. Tell me you've made a T-shirt and that 15 million people in the world will wear this exact (laughs) size and color of your T-shirt. Convince me. If you can convince me on the T-shirt part, I'm buying your money. You know? And that perspective sort of blows them away and they say, oh, you know, we never thought. I said, are you telling me that this T-shirt would be worn by people in Pakistan and Yemen and and, and Democratic Republic of Congo (laughs) and and Manila and and, in Vietnam and where else? I mean, one T-shirt, one size, right? Yeah. So um, I said, you know, you have to understand money. He said, yeah, but currencies like that. I said, no, but we have different currencies. We have different payment methods. We have different payment networks. Uh, you know, traction, it's the traction numbers that I see from these uh, startups are almost nearly all the time bullshit. You know, they're, they're, they're just, yeah, fanciful. they're nowhere near reality, nowhere near reality. You know, and let's face, let's face another reality here. Uh, Henry Ford did not inbe- invent and, and manufacture the best car in the world. You know, that's, a, that's an absolute fact. And if you look at almost every product, they were good enough to a certain level. This runs contrary to the way a lot of people are being taught, again, misreading the Silicon Valley, that everything has to be perfect, that the leader of this company is meticulous. Like they take Steve Jobs as an example, and it's a complete miscalculation, misunderstanding of what Steve Jobs was about. He was meticulous, but not in a way that a lot of, you know, second and third level founders have, you know, used Steve Jobs' ghost, if you will, to try to Mm -hmm. inform them. 
Steve would put out products that were not the best products in the world. He knew that at the time, but he knew that they were good enough. And he knew that the elements that needed to be the best were the best. And the elements that didn't need to have to be the best didn't have to be the best. And that is an editing process that makes a great deal of sense for anything that you do, but also specifically in the tech world. And again, I learned it with PayFinders. You know, I could have sat there and looked at the interface and the design and the code and all that for the rest of my life. Instead, I said, good enough. And, you know, I had a board of directors and an all-hands meeting myself. I said, Mm -hmm. just get it done. You know, and there's a... There's a point in time where you just need to birth something and all the other pieces will... Yeah, I, I, I agree on that part. I mean, you know, I, I'm not advocating when I say that, you know, ground research and traction, etc. Exactly. I'm not advocating that you sit on the sidelines. I'm saying get a product out and market it. Market but don't it like say crazy. 50 million people, right? Because it, what you need is you don't even the know. first you thousand. Don't even the first because th- your first batch of feedback may just end up changing a product altogether. Exactly, exactly. And and the fact is, I think it's pretty darn difficult for you to create a universal product for everybody from the from day one. I mean, let's look at Snapchat. There would be one computer, one mobile phone, yeah. one car. You know? Well, let's look at Snapchat, right? This is against everybody's common logic. A guy from Southern California, oh my gosh, who uh, who was uh, you know just kind of off the beaten path, came up with an idea idea for ephemeral messaging. And you could say, oh, Twitter does that. Uh, you know, Instagram does it. Facebook, in a sense. And, you know, uh, a lot of people want ephemeral nature. Well, now if you look at Snapchat, it's, a, it's becoming a massive platform. And it's on schedule to supersede where Twitter is in the next couple of years. And everybody's saying, how did that happen? Because you have individuals who took very, very small approaches they didn't want every teenager in America even. They just said, you know, there are some teenagers are going to put out a bit of communication for whatever reason. We can use our own minds to try to be creative on what we want to be ephemeral. But it turns out in my field of research, it isn't everything that you thought it was. Sometimes as youngsters, we, you know, when I was five or six years old, I didn't want the junk I said committed to the Internet for the rest of my life. Nor did I want the hormonally driven stuff I said when I was 15 committed to the Internet for the rest of my life. And that maybe informed the very base idea of what Snapchat was about. But it was effective enough to create a core audience. And then, of course, other people are on it. Now, Snapchat is not the effect. Some people still think it is because they haven't a you know, addressed it in their own life is what mm-hmm. Facebook was too. What did Mark Zuckerberg want to do? He wanted to meet some, some girls. I mean, let's face it. That's the reality. And for a while there, a lot of people were embarrassed to be on Facebook because they heard the narrative that it was a, a more accelerated uh, and a cerebral hot or not, uh, you know, app uh, or, or web uh, interface. Cause it wasn't even an app at that point. So the things start off with maybe a small segment, can they grow big? Was it the, the plan of the uh, founder, the moment they created the idea that they're going to take over the world? I would argue that there was no way in hell that Mark Zuckerberg sat in his dorm, dorm room at Harvard and, and looked out and said, someday my grandmom is going to be on here looking at my baby pictures or my, 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 the, the great grandkid pictures. It's not going to happen. So... What you do is you find that segment, in my view, right? You find that segment where it's not 50 million. 
And anybody who's buying in your story, if you need to tell that, you think you need to tell that to a VC, a whole lot of bad things are going wrong. First off, you found the wrong VC because that money's going to be, unfortunately, money that is not very intelligent. Some people call it dumb money. And that comes in with a whole lot of attachments that you don't want as a founder. And uh, maybe you're not very clear about your idea because it's not going to be that way. Now, do you stop having great visions? No. But you have, this is where practical and pragmatic comes. So what do you think is the minimum segment? I mean, can it be really mic- microscopic segment for payments? Is it you know, with the cost of a money transmitter license and all the costs involved? Listen, you can, you can, it all depends on how you want to scale. You can scale pretty minimum. You can be very elementary. You can choose a very specific uh, corridor if you will you know i only want to do between new york and i don't know let's say vietnam etc something like that and you can get rolling but at the end of the day it it what i and the companies i work for you know they're all in it for money they want to see how many transactions you'll be able to onboard and they want to see the very people very few people actually have transactions on board so they're interested to know how where the potential lies how do you plan to increase transactions and this is where fundamentally some of these startups go wrong they will say oh well you know we plan to do these types of transactions where currently the you know seven percent is being charged and we'll bring it down to three percent there you go not not knowing not knowing that they're going to cannibalize their existing banks seven percent revenue and bring it down to three so the bank is not going to be happy working with so that's a strategy issue right now of course i think probably the most base thing that people come up with 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 some ideas is i can do it cheaper and they really don't take technology out take pricing out what do you have left (laughs) that's my question yeah listen anyways we have five minutes so i want you to wrap it up your closing thoughts and advice i i think what we've covered here and i think we covered a whole lot of ground from the inception to execution i mean we're at it we're at a at a level where you have an idea that you're presenting to the world for investment. I think what we're learning in all this is that there are some challenges and we don't want them to be surprises to you. If you have a payments based idea, we don't want them to be surprises. They're out there. But what I think what we're trying to say is they're all overcomeable. You know, the, oh, the, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. I mean, we, from the very inception of the idea where it's not now very, you know, popular and, and fashionable to want to do a payment startup anymore. We saw that come and go. The payments disruption era is over. So now there's going to be some people coming up that have some really big ideas, maybe in a burning desire to get it done. I think what I'm trying to say, and I'm sh- sure you'll you know cover this, get that idea down, start building it. This is 2016. This is going to be the most creative time for payments in our history. And I think the you, Goldilocks year. You coined remember? it. You coined it. The Goldilocks year. And this is the extension of that. And I think throughout the year, we're going to be covering this a lot more in detail because now we have a, a, a the fresh uh, clearing of the ground. All We had a wildfire that took place in the forest. And it was a sad experience to see so many things get burned down. A lot of bad, you know, bad ideas got, you know, you know, deep sixed and a lot of good ideas unfortunately turned out not to be so good when they, you know, hit the public markets, et cetera. Now it's a time to really regroup from that and say, what did we learn from 20, 2009 to 2015? You know, we have this five, six year window that payments were going to change things. Bitcoin was going to change things. Well, the thing is, 
I believe that these things are all going to happen. And they're going to begin very clearly in 2016. And I think the infrastructures are there. I think the the ability to use the blockchain, whether it's Bitcoin or not, is going to really start surfacing in 2016. The absolute opportunity the Apple Pay and NFC offers is going to start surfacing. People are going to start seeing, I can build around this now. Instead of having the big X factor on what is a common element at every retail merchant, what's a common element on every online merchant, I now know what it's going to be. I think there's growth mm-hmm. there. What do you see, Faisal? What do you take from what we've talked about in this conversation? I, I, I just hope people sort of invest time in, in, in their project and in their company to learn. They need to uh, set aside time for that. They need to be cognizant that this is something that's a mandatory requirement if you're going to go into payments. You need to set time to learn, meet up with people, readjust your product. Don't be too stubborn about it. You will probably have to change the financial flow or the model or the way your revenue works based on the regulatory framework or based on restrictions that you may come across or even hurdles. So I think you need to be flexible and you need to be pragmatic. But at the same time, get it out. Get it out. Go raise funds. Fundraising is not that difficult of a challenge uh, but the the challenge is going to be getting clients on board. It is it will always be that. Now, when we go over Everest, we have somebody called a Sherpa, right? That's as near your part of the world. I'm saying mm-hmm. that right. Get a Nepal. good Sherpa, right? You get yep, somebody, yep. get somebody that can help guide you over Everest. These are overcomable uh, obstacles. And these these Sherpas have been there. They've been on the ground, and they can guide you through this. They may not have invented your idea, even though they've gone over that mountain 30, 40, 50, 100 times. They are going to guide you on a path to that mountain, and it's your ideas that are going to change the world. So and, and you know, in, in, in closing, I'll say this thing. Ben Milne of uh, Douala, someone asked him, well, you know, how did you get started in this thing? And he keep, you know, gave the idea that he was uh, drowning in uh, merchant fees, etc. And he says, well, how, how helpful were people? He says, you'd be surprised how helpful people were. It was as simple as sending them an email and getting a reply back. The industry, The industry is extremely helpful. You have to reach out to people. Be be sensitive to the times. Be sensitive as to the information you're asking for. This is not a place where you haggle too much. But, you know, considering that people are very helpful, they will they will definitely reply back. Most people that I know do. And uh, hopefully they get they, they all also want to see you succeed. No one wants to see you drown. And I, I might add, Faisal, the ones that don't reply back, good. Because you don't need to talk to them. That's what I'm saying. If they don't have the time to respond to you, they've gotten to such a station in life where they can't answer an email or a response because you're not worthy and they're so busy. Good. They don't need you. Well, on that note, gentlemen, uh, Brian, good talking to you. Wonderful. We'll hook up again next week and uh, take care. Thank take you. Take care. Thanks.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.